Okay, so, Mr. Herbert, there he is, 1593 to 1633. Some biological facts, but did I move it again already? Yeah, 40. Yes, he died very young. He actually died at age 39. He was born April 3rd, 1593 in Wales, and he died March 1st, 1633 at 39 years old of tuberculosis, which he had most of his life, or consumption, I guess they might call it. He was widely known as a poet, which we're going to spend pretty much all our time on his poetry because there's not a whole lot of other things when you're 39 years old that uh, he had. He was a pastor later in life, which we'll see in a second. He was the seventh of 10 children. His dad died when he was three years old, but that was actually still okay because they were a relatively, hi kids, well off, oh, we're gonna sit right by the, <laughs> 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 Yeah, I'm gonna sit right by the cookies. <laughs> Best friend today. <laughs> <laughs> nice. The cookies are warm and the milk is cold, so that's all we have to say. Um, they were actually still well off because his dad managed his uh, his estate very well and left his estate to their mother. Mom eventually remarried and uh, had, he had a pretty good relationship with his stepfather, from what we can tell. He studied at Trinity College, Cambridge. He was a great student. He had a solid classical education. He graduated second in his class with his bachelor's, and then four years later, he got his master's. He became a fellow of Cambridge, and then he actually was elected public orator in 1619. And what that is, is it's a huge public position where you're literally speaking on behalf of the school, and think about it, on behalf of Cambridge, to royalty that comes and visits, to other heads of state, to other uh, very, very important people. You're doing basically all the press for the school. You're basically doing all of the speeches for the school. So it is a huge, prestigious public opinion. And I'll read a little bit about how he thought of it and then eventually how he started to think of it. Herbert wrote to his stepfather what it meant to be elected the orator. The finest place in the university, though not the gainfulest, I guess it wasn't paying all that much, for the orator writes all the university letters, makes all the orations, be it to the king, supposedly he uh, spoke in front of King James as well, be it to the king, the prince, or whatever comes to the university to requite these pains, he takes place next to the doctors. It is, it is at all their assemblies and meetings and sits above the proctors, which will please a young man well. So he, he really uh, absorbed this whole kind of power and prestige. And as we'll see in a little while, he actually started to, um, well, as we'll see right now, he starts to change. Eleven years after his election, on the day of his induction into the parish ministry at Beamerton, so when he finally became a, a pastor... He wrote, I can now behold the court with an impartial eye and see plainly that it is made up of fraud, titles, and flattery, and many such other empty, imaginary, and painted pleasures. Pleasures that are so empty as to not satisfy when they are enjoyed. So almost 12 years later, you saw that he really saw the ins and outs and underbelly of all that fame and fortune, and he didn't like it. And that's what actually drove him to the ministry. Of course, the Lord himself. He also served a stint in Parliament for a year in 1623, 
and he gradually surrendered to the call to ministry. He was ordained a deacon in the Church of England in 1626, and he was ordained a priest in 1630. He served his last four years of his life in a very small church in Beamerton, never having more than 100 people in his church. He married late in life, uh, four years before his death, no biological children, but he did adopt three nieces that needed to be adopted. So um, that's some biographical info. Let's look at really where we'll spend a lot of our time tonight, just on his poetry. He wrote 167 poems, and what's cool about that is that he never intended to publish them, and he never published them, and he never wanted to be famous, really, for what he was doing. They did not get published until after his death. Mm. And so if we read a little bit about that, it's kind of a cool story. 621. So his close friend, this was right at, uh, near the end of his life, his close friend, Nicholas Farrar, sent a fellow pastor, Edmund Duncan, to see how Herbert was doing. On Duncan's second visit, Herbert knew the end was near. So he reached for his most cherished earthly possession which is his book where he recorded all of his poems. And he said, Sir, I pray deliver this little book to my dear brother Farrar and tell him he shall find in it a picture of the many spiritual conflicts that have passed betwixt God and my soul. Before I could subject mine to the will of Jesus, my master, in whose service I have now found perfect freedom, desire him to read it. And then if he think it may turn to the advantage of any dejected poor soul, let it be made public. If not, let him burn it, for I and it are less than the least of God's mercies. He spent well over a decade, probably close to two decades, writing these 167 poems, and he didn't, sorry, and he didn't publish it. But at the end of his life, he says, hey, if you think this will help someone, then publish it. But if not, then, then burn it. <laughs> but look at how he says, what, what, he, what he says is in it. You'll find a picture of the many spiritual conflicts that have passed betwixt God and my soul. So his whole journey with God, his faith, uh, the love of God for his soul, the battles of him and sin, all of that were recorded in this. And so it's kind of a treasure trove for us. Um, the central theme was the redeeming love of Christ. 48 years after Herbert's death, just to show you a little bit about what other people thought about that, Richard Baxter said, Herbert speaks to God like no one that really believeth a God and whose business in this world is most with God, or like one, rather, that really believes God and whose business in this world is most with God. Heart work and heaven work make up his books. William Cowper cherished Herbert's poetry and his struggle with depression. Samuel Taylor Coleridge, a 19th century poet and critic, wrote, I find more substantial comfort now in George Herbert's temple, which is what he called his poems, than all the poetry since the poetry of Milton. This is what people thought about those little poems that he was like, ah, if they're good, you know, print it, run off a few copies, see if it helps anybody. If not, just burn it and forget this ever happened, right? So 
One of the themes was, again, spiritual conflict, which he said happens betwixt, we got to use that word more. Can we bring that word back? Betwixt God and my soul. So the spiritual conflict and especially God's sovereignty in spiritual conflict. Piper said the sovereign intervention into the rebellious human heart was the best of news. So, so he knew that God in his sovereignty, in his struggles, was continuing to intervene. God was continuing to chase. God was continuing to sanctify. He wrote poetry the whole time he was wrestling with God over the call to ministry. And think about it. Remember the prestige that he said was involved in that office, right? So he's wrestling with this for probably 12 years. How do I give this up? You know, this is a good life. <laughs> I'm really famous, but God's calling me to ministry. So he's wrestling through that. He referred to the fragmented, fickle nature of the human heart and the only remedy for it. And catch this, God's daily sovereign work as creator to make us, not just to mend us. So he didn't want God to just fix him. He wanted God to remake him. And I think I have some of his quotes. Yeah, here's something from one of his poems. Lord, mend or rather make us one creation. One creation will not suffice our turn. Except thou make us daily, we shall spurn our own salvation. And what he's saying there is, is Christianity is not a one-time deal. It's not just I submit to God once, right? And then everything's okay. He's saying this is something that I am dependent on the sovereign God to intervene and to continue to remake me into your image on a daily basis. Not getting saved again, right? But... Unless God is continuing to remake me, right? He says, I'm even going to spurn my own salvation. I'm even going to just, it's not worth it. Like, I can't do it myself. He knows that God has to do it. And I thought of some verses. 2 Corinthians 3, 18. Just in that idea of uh, our sanctification, you guys will recognize this verse. Paul writes, And we all with unveiled face beholding the glory of the Lord, are being transformed into the same image from one degree of glory to another. For this comes from the Lord, who is the Spirit. The idea that Paul says kind of the same thing, that we need to be remade, right? We're being transformed. Metamorphosis, that's where that word comes from. We're being transformed into that same image by the Lord from one degree of glory to the next. And that's a little bit of what Herbert was maybe referring to the work of God to remake us into his image. He also mentions the struggle of God uh, for what he says to tame our hearts. And he has this line, full of rebellion, I would die or fight or travail, meaning I would put forth a lot of effort, or I would deny that thou hast ought to do with me, O tame my heart. It is the highest art to captivate strongholds to thee. And if we kind of pick that apart a little bit, because it's old English, right? He calls on God to tame his heart. Right? What kind of things come to my mind or come to your minds when you think about somebody saying, tame my heart? Make it do tricks. What? Think about somebody says, uh, tame my heart. What do you think that could be referring to? Asking God to do that. Control. Mm -hmm. Yep. 
Keep it within bounds. Control. Yep. Make it respond to him, right? Somebody tames a lion, right? Supposedly the lion is going to respond to what you're going to tell them to do. So theoretically, he wants his heart to follow God's lead in that, right? He also calls it the highest art. He said to captivate strongholds. And for God to take over sinful strongholds in his heart. So it's basically the more ground that he gives to God in his heart, the happier and the more fulfilled he knows that he will be. Um, another verse in 2 Corinthians, 2 Corinthians 10, 3 through 5, says this, For though we walk in the flesh, we are not waging war according to the flesh. For the weapons of our warfare are not of the flesh, but have divine power to destroy strongholds. Exactly what he's talking about. We destroy arguments and every lofty, lofty opinion raised against the knowledge of God and take every thought captive to obey Christ. That's a ground zero for what he's talking about there. And the idea of the battleground is our hearts. You know, we don't, we don't struggle against actual flesh and blood. We struggle against these enemies that are spiritual enemies. We have divine power to destroy strongholds. We destroy arguments and every lofty opinion raised against the knowledge of God. That's, that's, that's where the battle is being fought, fought in our hearts, right? And he tells us the more that we do this, the more territory of our hearts, the more of that that's surrendered to God, the better off that will be. And he has another quote. But to have naught or to have nothing is ours. Not to confess that we have nothing, right? He says, not just to say we have nothing, but to actually have nothing is what he's after. He said, I stood amazed at this, and he was troubled by that until I heard a friend say that all things were more ours by being his. There's that last line, man. That, that's, that's the mic drop line. All things are more ours by being his. Like, the more that we actually let go and give up these things in our hearts, right, that are not actually obedient to God. That's the more joy. That's when, that's when life actually becomes worth living and full of joy and submission and satisfaction. And he knew that. Such a hugely powerful line. Um, I'll read a little bit on that. 641. He says, and again, think of where he was. So for him, it was real practical. He's giving up this huge prestigious position, right? Herbert hoped that, that the record of his own encounters with God and his poetry would do good to others, and they have. God brought him through so many afflictions and so many temptations that his poems bore the marks not only of utmost art, but also of utmost reality. Sitting finally at peace in his master's table did not come without the temptations of the world that had to offer him. The lure of academia, the pull of political power, the raw pleasures of the body that were open to such positions, he had known access to them all. His poem called The Pearl includes the title Matthew 13, and it's a reference to Matthew 13, 45 to 46, which is the kingdom of heaven is like a merchant who sold fine pearls, who on finding one pearl of great value went and sold all that he had and bought it. And the poem unfolds Herbert's experience of the world and how he came to purchase the pearl. Guys, remember that that 
that account in Matthew, right? You find the pearl of greatest price, right? You would sell everything that you have in order to obtain that, right? That's what God says, the, Jesus says the kingdom of God is like. It's exactly what Herbert's saying. Like, like when you understand how much you will actually gain in regards to giving up these things, you would give anything to get more of Christ. He says, I know the ways of learning both the head and the pipes that feed the press and make it run. I know the ways of honor, which maintains the quick returns of courtesy and wit. I know the ways of pleasure, the sweet strains, the lullings, and the relishes of it. I know all these, and I have them in my hand. Therefore, not sealed, but with open eyes, I fly to thee and fully understand both the mainsail and the commodities, and at what rate and price I have thy love. He's saying, I know exactly what it cost me. And it's worth it. It's absolutely worth it. So Matthew gave us some good examples in there of, of the, the pearl of greatest price. Any other scriptural examples come to mind of giving up something so that we obtain more of Christ? Um, there's, there's a Christian, um, not a Bible verse, I don't think, uh, uh, Contemporary song, it says, uh, if more of uh, you means less of me, then take everything. Okay. Which, <clears throat> which kind of... Yeah. 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 I was thinking of that as I was preparing for this too, the John the Baptist line, right? He must increase and I must decrease. Mm-hmm. Yeah. yeah. Kind of along those same lines. Yeah. I was thinking of when <coughs> Jesus' family came to, um, and they were calling him out of the house to come outside. Yeah. He said, who is my family? Who is my brother and my sisters? And, yeah. You know, you have to leave your family. And, you know, yep. Right. Yeah. And the idea, right, is it's worth it. Yeah. Right. He's not calling us to just give up something. Right. So that we lose. We actually gain. I was thinking Philippians 3, 7, but whatever I gain, I count it as a loss for the sake of Christ. Mm. Indeed, I count everything as a loss because of the surpassing worth of knowing Christ Jesus, my Lord. Mm. Yeah. I was thinking the same thing. We must be on the oh, same wavelength. Who is hiding that? <laughs> is that the same verse of, uh, if one, one needs to lose his life to, to, to find same life? Yeah. Is, there, is there a verse... Uh, we're probably thinking of Jesus, right? And there's uh, one that Paul says, I want to know Christ in all his yeah, glory, for to live is. as him is to die as gain. Right. What does it to gain a man Christ. if he, if he uh, gains a whole world yes, or loses his soul? Is that what you're talking about, that one? I, I think so. Yeah. Um, I'm reminded of a, a verse in, um, I think it's Genesis chapter 6. <laughs> Mm-hmm. Oh, yes, is this... Uh, this is Giants of the Faith we're doing tonight, right? <laughs> yes, of the faith. It's about the Nephilim. This, that's highly relevant, thank you. I appreciate it so much. Those of you who don't know Ron, he goes to, goes to, goes to great lengths to fit in the Nephilim into any conversation at all. I can't wait till I come down with the stomach flu one time on a Sunday morning, and then you just better have a sermon on the Nephilim ready to go. I've been working out it my whole life. That'll be your one chance. <laughs> so really, I mean, we can ask a question like this. What is the key to our flourishing? What is the key, besides cookies, what is the key to our happiness? Stop looking at me. <laughs> <laughs> 
<laughs> so amazing. I mean, we all we all want to be happy, right? And it's not it's not that's not a bad thing. God's given us like that's Piper's whole jam. Like that's his whole ministry, right? Is that you know we're more satisfied in Christ, right? The more that we give up to Him, right? Um, but yeah, it is Jesus. It is, it is, that's the key to our happiness. That's the key to our joy. And there's nothing wrong with pursuing joy. That's the whole point. But we want to pursue joy in the right way, which is Jesus Christ, and giving those things up. So some practical implications we could think about. Did I have this on another slide? I did. See? Philippians 3, 7 to 11. So some practical implications. I can't see it. I know, because of our lovely error message. <laughs> what do we practically do? Because we could sit here. There it is. It'll come back very shortly. Well, maybe not. Turn around. It's been healed. Um, but we can, we can say, we can say Jesus. Okay, cool, Jesus. What does that mean? Practically, like we leave this room and we're like, okay, I, I want more joy. I agree with Herbert and the Apostle Paul. How do we get more of Jesus? What does that practically mean in our Christian walks? How do we let Jesus have more territory in our hearts? We have to put things aside, hindrance to make room. Yeah, like what kind of things? It's not true confessions, but you know, generally. <laughs> Our own self. Uh, vices versus? Yeah. The old self. We put on the new. Yeah. The recurring theme over the yes. last couple of days, right? It is a recurring theme. Yeah. The old self. Ephesians Vices. Four. Yeah. Mel said self in general. Cookies. 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 If they're going to cause <laughs> you to stumble. Right? <laughs> yeah. All those things. We're talking about putting sin to death. We're talking mm -hmm. about who is the actual functional savior in our lives. Uh, who is the actual king of our lives, right? Who are we living our lives for? What's our worldview in that? Are we, you know, it, Jesus soon will be in Matthew 22, the end part of it, where he gives the greatest commandment, right? Love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength. Really, it's anything that gets in the way of us doing that. What things are we loving more than Christ? And, and those things need to be kicked off the throne, right? But sure, putting sin to death, mortifying sin, uh, practical ways, engaging in more service, right? More service in the church or more service giving ourselves up, giving our time, our money, our resources or whatever, instead of hoarding everything. And it's since to serve and not think we need to be uh, to serve, yeah. not to have us be served. Yeah, yeah, definitely, yeah. I mean, we're, we're talking about heart words here. We're talking about the territory of the heart. So that involves affections, right? That involves emotions, right? If you've read much Piper, he's all about emotions and all about affections for God. And that he comes by that honestly because comes, that comes through Jonathan Edwards. And that's all he was about is affections for God. And love. Yeah. How do we stir our affections for God? How do we, how do we love God more deeply? By getting to know him. Okay. Relationship. Yeah, relationship, spending time in his word, right? Mm -hmm. Getting to know him, meditating on his word, meditating on his attributes and right. things like that. 
Anyone else? Reminding ourselves of what he's done for us. Yep, reminding ourselves of what he's done for us, ultimately, right, in Jesus Christ. Absolutely. Service. Yeah. Service, definitely. Um, heard Prayer. it said. Prayer is a great way in your communion with God, right? Going back to service or community, right? We, we hear it all the time, right? It's like, oh, I didn't really want to come to care group tonight. I was really tired after a long day work. But then you get there, and I'm like, I'm glad I'm here, right? I know you guys all feel that way about midweek, so we'll just, you know, it's just true. Make the effort to be with other believers, right? You make the effort to, as Mel said, like, less of yourself, and when you're in community with believers, they're stoking your affections for God. There's also practical ways, I think, too, that, um, you know, guys like Edwards would go for a, a ride in the woods, right? Get up and see the sunrise Yeah. with an open Bible and things like that. It's pretty hard to sit in front of the ocean on a sunrise with your open Bible and be sad. Quietness. Uh, quietness. Yeah. Silence and solitude. Yeah. yeah. To be quiet and, and, and listen to God. How he may speak to you. Yeah. You know, um, yeah. Yeah, so so I was just trying to give us some kind of practical things because we could say, yeah, I give more of my heart to God. But w what does that mean, you know, in a practical level, right? That's what we want to do. We want to translate these things that these guys have done and help cause it to encourage us to live more for Christ today. Let's talk about another theme he had in his poetry, which was. It was uh, poetry as a way of experiencing God himself. Piper, and Piper nerded out on this chapter because he's a poet too. So he's like completely gaga about, he just went on and on and on. Sorry, John, if you're listening, which I know you're not. <laughs> Piper said, writing poetry for Herbert was not merely recording his experience with God that he had before the writing. The writing was part of the experience of God. It was, in the making, a way of seeing and savoring God. Communion with God happened in the writing. Probably the poem that says this most forcefully is called Quiddity. That is the essence of things. And his point is that the poetic verses are nothing in themselves, but everything if God is in them. So he, his writing of poetry was his way of stirring affections for God. And he felt God... There was no voodoo christian mysticism here right it wasn't like a chant and, you know god came amongst the birds of the poem but it stirred his affections for god and he felt a, it was a way of him experiencing god in the presence of god as he thought about these attributes of god and wrote about them and meditated on them i'll read you a little bit of that poem it says god not a verse or god is a verse not a crown no point of honor or a gay suit. We've got a lot of language to work through here, okay? No hawk or banquet or renown. Not a good sword, nor yet a lute. It cannot vault or dance or play. It never was in France or Spain, nor can it entertain the day with a great stable or domain. It is no office, art, or news, nor the exchange or busy hall. But it is that which, while I use, I am with thee, and most take all. And again, wherefore, with my utmost art, I will sing thee. And the cream of all my heart, I will bring thee. Some language to work through there, right? But he's saying, it's, it's, God is in none of those other things that he's kind of experienced before. 
like all the fame, all the fancy clothes, all the, you know, not even a good sword or good music. He wasn't in an exotic place like France or Spain. He says the utmost, he says the cream of my heart, like talk about like, you know, ice cold milk and you know, the cream, the top of the cream, right? The, the best part, right? The cream of my heart, the best part of my heart. He says, I will bring thee. I will bring you the best part of my heart. Cream rises to the top. Yeah, cream rises to the top, the sweetest part, right? So for him, he was so passionate about poetry and he was so good at it. Like, non-believers, like, love George Herbert because of his, I'm not a poetry guy, but his, his the way that he wrote, the technical aspect of how he wrote, he is a world-renowned poet. And it showed because he was writing about the things of God. So some uh, observations maybe we can talk about just in that. What are we passionate about? Whatever we are passionate about, it is a gift of God. Not for the world's glory, but for communion with God himself. So God's put those passions and those giftings and those desires and those promptings in you, and he's put them in you not for your own glory, like he says, not just so I can be, you know, Mr. Public Order, but so that you can have communion with God himself. And so what kind of things could that include? What kind of passions could God put within us, giftings? Maybe somebody can share something that they have done in passions or giftings that you felt like, man, this is where God has me. And I feel closer to God when I'm serving God in this way. I'll put one out. Put it out there. Playing on the worship team. Worshiping God with music. There you go. I love worshiping God with music, whether it's playing on the worship team, playing at home by myself, playing in my backyard, playing anytime. Monday night care care groups. (laughs) Right. Yeah. (laughs) You know, yeah. Yeah. I love worshiping God through music. Yeah. Absolutely. Thank you. That's exactly what we're talking about. You know, the idea of. You know, God's given you abilities to do that. It's music. God created music. He's created our ears to receive notes and melody and harmonies and all of those things. That stirs your affections for God. What other things? Cookies. Cookies stir our affections. Baking. Baking. Cooking. Serving. Serving. There are some very, very gifted... Cleaning up coffee. Cleaning up coffee, right? Serving. But there are some very gifted cooks, right? Chefs, bakers, like Bridget, right? That, that you know, that could be would, a way of communing with God. I would say that anyone that is serving in a capacity where they've been equipped, and it's obvious, that's art. Yeah. Like art's mm-hmm. ultimate goal is to reflect the glory of God and to serve the glory of God. Yeah, so yeah. that's the key. Form. Yeah, that's the key, right? Because the the world, the secular worldview would say, well, it's for us, right? It's for our glory, right, that we do those things. We're great musicians or we're great chefs or we're great artists or whatever for us and we give back to the world. No, it's, it, it's for the Christian worldview. It is a communion with God and it's to bring glory to God. Mm-hmm. So yeah, anything then that we're serving in is supposed to do that. Yeah, Frank? The, the nursing profession was a was a passion. There you go. For me, uh, how you can touch others yeah. uh, through your love. Probably Cheryl can, it's hard to explain, but yeah. um, 
can give you goosebumps, you know, yeah. uh, to love others in the way that God loves you. Yeah. And um, <coughs> to treat them how God would treat them. Yeah. You know, and being the best of the best at what you do. Mm -hmm. That's really key, too. Because really, that kind of broadens the horizon to really whatever we do. Mm -hmm. Right. We do yeah. all for the glory of God. Right. And we yeah. should First do it to the best of our ability. Yeah. Yeah. So, yeah, absolutely. In medical profession, absolutely. Yeah. Helping others, right? Real practical, tangible ways that you're helping others. If you were ever a patient, which you were, sometimes people aren't patients. Yeah. Uh, when, when you're down in the valley, uh, it means an awful lot just to hold someone's hand. Oh, you're not kidding. And yeah. Not just a family member, but even outside of the family when someone yeah. just rests their palm, mm -hmm. their palm on your head. Yeah. Touch. Yeah. You know, you take your palm, your hand, and you rest it on someone's head. Yeah. Same and, exact thing. Yep. Yeah, and, and, and you tell a person who you don't know, God loves you, I love you. Yeah. It's very powerful. I can testify to that going through cancer many, many times. There was, there was someone who was a kind nurse or whoever else, you know. God. <laughs> Yes, serving others, cutting grass, right? I actually had that in there, <laughs> mowing the grass or doing any other regular task. Like you could, you could mow the grass, you could sit back, you could look at that, and you're like, I made this property beautiful, right? And that brings glory to God. I used to, Tony used to holler at me. I used to go out Sunday mornings before church. I love the garden, right? I used to look at the garden and watch it grow. Yeah. You know? And Tony goes... Right, it's time to go to church. Grow. You know, what, what are you doing out there? You know, but, He's got a ruler. But, 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 but you know, it's quiet. Sunday mornings are very, very quiet. Uh, and you stand out there and you just... Yeah. You know, and... Definitely. Yeah, and you take it all in. I mean, yeah. That stuff don't grow. Yeah. Not, not ultimately, God grows it. Right. He just uses our hands to... Uh, Right, but you're it. putting effort into it and diligence. Yeah, it's amazing. Killing bugs and fertilizing and pulling weeds and all this. I don't mean to get stuck in the garden, but garlic. Have you ever grown garlic? No. Yes. The garlic that we have is probably 80 years old, which an elderly man gave me. What? Well, it just oh, keeps, we, we just keep replacing Oh, 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 okay. Yes. But it's the same, the same. Yuck, 80 years old. Huh? I'm showing my complete naivete <laughs> for garden. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> you save it and then you replant it. And that strain never changes. It yeah. never, it never changes. No. The garlic, the DNA, whatever the it is, DNA of the garlic never changes. <laughs> it yeah. doesn't change. Just like God never changes. That that doesn't change. Yeah. Amen. You put that all together. I mean. Yeah. So I just wanted to give us some more, again some more practical ways to kind of think oh, of well. this, right? <laughs> like not everybody's a poet, right? In fact, we probably have very few poets, right? Um, but w however God has given us passions and giftings and abilities should be a way, like George Herbert, to have that communion with God in whatever we're doing, right? Whether that is painting or poetry or writing music, right? Or recording music or, um, you know, being in the outdoors in sunrises or being on the ocean or fishing to the glory of God. Can I get an amen to that, right? <laughs> Maybe in some way it's sports. I mean, who remembers that Chariots of Fire guy, right? He says, I believe God made me for a purpose, and he also made me fast. And when I run, I feel his pleasure. 
Remember that quote? And again, for others, this is just regular tasks that we can do and do to the best of our ability. Our jobs we can do to the best of our ability and we can point back and bring glory to God and, and we can have communion with God. Like for me, it's, I mean, I love being a pastor and hopefully God's gifted me a little bit in order to do that. And I love being able to do that and bring glory to God. And it's a way of communing with God as we teach and as we shepherd and as we do all that stuff. So in short, it could be anything. Right, because God is in all things, right? But here's the danger. Do, just doing those things, like say George Herbert, right, because he's an amazing poet, right? And he's writing all these poems and he's communing with God and he's thinking deeply about all his attributes and he's just having a grand old time. Does that mean that's his church? Does that mean that's like, well, I'm communing with God, so why do I have to go to church? Does that take the place of church? No. Yeah. Why not? We have to learn God's specific revelation through his word. Okay. And we have to have fellowship with others. He says in Hebrews, don't forsake the gathering of the yeah. saints. So one straight up, it's a command in Hebrews. Right, right? it's a command in Hebrews. Don't, so we're don't forsake the gathering. We're supposed to be gathering together. Right. Yep. We're all parts of the body. And yeah, the body don't really work unless yep. you have it. And the other thing he said was really important too, right? You know, hey, sure, okay. I mean, so he's hold up in his poetry studio writing poetry, right. what's going to stop him from, from <laughs> veering yeah. off the path a little bit and right. getting some heresy or some weird teaching or something like that, yeah. right? Right. So that's so important too. It's a strange concept to believe in a Lord who says that, love the Lord your God with all of your heart and mind and soul, and then love your neighbor as yourself, but you only tend to practice a <coughs> sort of autonomy in that and forget the second part where you're loving your neighbors. Mm -hmm. It's like yeah. you're cutting off half of your active faith. Yeah. True. Yep. I have heard it said, you know, yeah, I, I don't think I need to go to church, right? Because mm -hmm. the deer stand is my, my church. Mm -hmm. I'm there. I'm one with God. I feel his presence and I see his face in the deer before I shoot them or whatever, right? It's not true. So I just wanted to, just wanted to push on that a little bit because it is a common misperception, misunderstanding that, hey, no, I'm with God. I'm with God in creation. I don't need church. I'm spiritual. I'm spiritual. I'm not really religious, but I'm spiritual. <laughs> right? Very important. Okay. So let's look at the third theme here. Um, should be. Well, yeah, I guess I never changed that last theme because the points are correct. The title is not. So poetry theme number three, expressing... God's sovereignty in salvation. Dun, dun, dun. That's right. You saw it probably by his little hat. He is a flaming Calvinist and a Puritan. And so... I gotta get a hat. You gotta get a hat. There you go, Rhoda. I'll get going. He was in the 1500s. Like, what else? You know, didn't really have any other choice. Uh, he says, uh, in fact... People have met God in Herbert's poems, and their lives have been changed. One guy, Joseph Summers, said of Herbert's poems, we can only recognize the immediate imperatives of his greatest art, saying, you must change your life. One guy walked away with. Simon Weil, the French philosopher, was totally agnostic towards God and Christianity, but he encountered Herbert's poem, Love, and became a kind of Christian mystic, calling the poem the most beautiful poem in the whole world. Um... Herbert's poems, again, seem to have this idea of the gospel's too good to be true. Like, I, I don't 
deserve this. And I know I didn't do anything to deserve this, right? C.S. Lewis, if you guys have heard of him, but he actually wrote... Uh, Not a Calvinist. What? Not a Calvinist. Not a Calvinist. <laughs> Shocking. <laughs> Quoted by him. And he's so he smart, too. He was. Yeah, he did wear a hat. That is true. He did wear a hat. <laughs> Not the right one. But C.S. Lewis wrote supposedly one of the best, greatest histories of 16th century literature, which I will never read. But people rave about it. He says, like an accepted lover, he's talking about uh, the Calvinist, the Calvinism that Herbert espoused, like an accepted lover, he feels that he's done nothing and never could have done anything to deserve such astonishing happiness. His own puny and ridiculous efforts would be as helpless to retain the joy as they would have been to achieve it in the first place. Relief and buoyancy are the characteristic notes. So he's saying, Men like uh, Herbert and their writings amongst this time period, especially in, in this Calvinistic kind of Puritan stream, saying they knew that they didn't do anything to deserve salvation and it was a gift of God. And for them, it just seemed a little bit too good to be true. Piper compared it again to the famous uh, gentle and lowly passage, right? Come to me, all you who are weary and heavy burdened, and I will give you rest, right? That idea of I'm not doing anything except running into my Savior's arms, and, and, and he's taking me there. So this idea, again, that, that the Calvinism, the Reformed faith, is not something, it wasn't something for men like Herbert to be something that is beating people over the head, but instead it's kind of a warm blanket. And when we think about not so much Calvinism, but maybe, maybe phrasing it as God's sovereignty and salvation, right? The way that he <clears throat> saves people. How is that reassuring to us? The way that God saves people in his sovereignty, how is that reassuring to us? How is it a warm blanket to us? Not a single sparrow falls to the ground apart from his will. Yeah. Think about that. Not a bird dies without God saying, yep, that was the bird's time. Cool. Sparrow number 90, gajillion, <laughs> 758 million. It's your turn. Yeah. And of course he goes on to say that he cares for us because we're worth more than many sparrows, right? Yeah. What other ways could this be an encouragement to us? It's, it's a big comfort to not constantly have the fear of, if I screw up one more time, that's my last chance. Constantly. Yeah. Mm -hmm. Yeah. The idea of it's not performance-based salvation. I hope I'm not. I hope I'm doing enough for God to count me worthy and save me. Yeah, absolutely. Now we can't lose our salvation. He's the one who earned it. it. We didn't earn it. We didn't earn it. Yep. It wasn't anything we did to get it. Yep. It was a free gift of God. Yep. Ephesians two eight and nine. And what does that say about our eternity? Our future. Yeah, it's absolutely secure. First Peter says, kept in heaven for us. Guarded until we, we need it when we pass away. The idea, too, that um, even our daily life in Christ, where every single minute he sustains us, right? As we sing, he will hold us fast. An idea. It's a really old hymn, and it was written that way for a reason, because people knew that it's, he's the one that's causing us to persevere, even in those moments. So good stuff. Anything else on that? All right. 
maybe just land the plane with some closing thoughts here. One of the things that is the biggest challenge is, right, we have one message, <laughs> right? Like one pastor said, I have one bullet in my gun. Like it's, it's the gospel. All of the Bible points to the gospel, right? The Old Testament points to the coming of the Messiah. The gospels talk about, obviously, the coming of the Messiah. And then after that, it talks about the early church and you know, what's expected in light of the Messiah, right? So we are constantly sharing the gospel. Anybody ever feel like they just run out of words when it's time to share the gospel? Or maybe use the same words and... I don't ever run no, out of words. Don't ever run out of words? <laughs> I think the challenge is how to phrase the glorious gospel in glorious ways. Because we can all admit that the gospel is the greatest news ever. And God is the most supreme, wonderful, awesome, magnificent being that exists. He is king and he's ruler and he's sovereign and all of that. How do you possibly pick words to describe even coming close to who God is and what he's done for us in Jesus Christ, right? That's, that's a lot of the challenge. And how do you do that without compromising the content, mm -hmm. right? How we say things is huge, and, and we need to learn to say it and adapt it, and we need to use words for the glory of God. One of the scariest verses in the Bible, too, is, is he says, we will give, Jesus says, we will give an account for every careless word that we have spoken. <laughs> Midweek encouragement. Yeah. But I, I thought we were, we were saying, what does that mean? What is... But if our sins are... If our sins are forgiven, why would we have to give an account for my sins? Uh, is he talking about sins? Whatever is straw will get burned away. Whatever is not will remain. Yeah. Yeah. Think of words like, the right word isn't commodity, but it's almost like time. Right? He says, be redeeming the time for the day is days are evil. Right? Make the most use of our time. See, the parable of the talents comes to mind. Parable of the talents. Right? So think of words like that. Are we using the words... We only have a precious amount of words. Some of you have a lot of words. Some of you have less words, right? <laughs> I already confessed it, right? I'm blind and I saw you look at me when you said that. I did not. Are we, are we choosing our words carefully? Are we thinking about the words in such a way like, okay, God's given me a brain to pick the word and a tongue to form the word? Ron has a brain? <laughs> Ron has a big brain. You say you're sorry right now. Exactly. What are we talking about? Sorry. Personally, I love it. So I think what Jesus is going for in that. I may have to. That'll burn away. Heaven. Are we using all of our resources, including our words, for the... I'm at, I'm at midweek, Lynn. <laughs> Are we using all of our resources, including our words, for the maximization of the glory of God? Or are we just kind of on autopilot sometimes with our words? Especially when we're talking about God. 
and we're thinking about the gospel or sharing the gospel or talking about spiritual concepts. Like, words really matter, right? When you look at a guy like, and this was a struggle for me, kids, because I'm not a poetry guy at all, so I, this was hard. I'm trying to appreciate this, but it helps saying it out loud, like reading poems out loud, like that really made it kind of penetrate my thick brain, right? But the point is that, now you're, yeah, it's nice. Now, I got people texting me now. <laughs> the point is with a guy like, um, just ran right out of my head, George Herbert, yeah. is that every word mattered to him. And especially it mattered because he was talking about the glories of God. And writing them down. And writing them down. Yeah. Right? That's honestly why, I mean, I manuscript my sermons out. Yeah. I don't preach from a manuscript, but I want to I wanna choose every single word that I say and phrase it in a certain way. Like, that's what, that's what we've got to think about here. Well, words matter. You can't take them back. Yeah. Um, Absolutely. You may only have one shot, uh, and if you don't catch it, yeah. it could linger in someone's mind. Uh, like a church is not a place of sins. It's true. <laughs> Well, thank you, Rhoda. That was an error. I misspoke, okay? I'll give you one example of a word that we have murdered the glory of God with. And there probably will be others. And this might be a fun little exercise, but I'll give you one of my personal pet peeves. And that word is awesome. Everything's awesome. Pizza's awesome that whatever was awesome, and then God is also awesome. Which is it? Mm. We've murdered the word awesome. Right? It should mean awe. <laughs> so, like something that's full of awe that makes you tremble and shake. So you're saying right? we've diluted the word Absolutely. from its original biblical Absolutely. spiritual meaning. Mm -hmm. Okay. Yeah. Yeah. Almost every affirming word we use, because we use great, but like great is so, and we yeah. use it in the context of God, it's so big. Yeah. And then we say, oh, they're a good person, but like none of us are good. You know, like we use so many words in our regular days that when we take it in the context of the Bible and just the language that the Bible uses yeah. and the importance of that. It's like a completely different word. Yeah. Yeah. Another, now I'm like paranoid to say any word. Another profound example. <laughs> I was going to say great example. <laughs> it makes you think though, right? And that's what I wanted us to do is just kind of stop and think about some of the words that we use, especially with regarding the gospel. Because we can slip into Christianese, right? And we can say these words that we kind of know, and then especially if we're talking to a non-believer or something, like, what does that actually mean? Propitiation. <laughs> yeah, think about it. Use it. Yeah. yeah. I think it's funny that you mentioned this because I just had this conversation today when I was doing a tour. You know, I work in an assisted living community, and we use words like resident, not patient, community, not a facility, because mm -hmm, yeah. it's you know, more War. attuned to what we are, yeah. you know, and describes what we are. Yeah. Just like those words were meant for, you know, a particular purpose.
person. It's more like a, a description of what we are to people yep. using the words. You know, we choose those words carefully. Yeah. You know? Yeah. And for me, coming from you know the last time I worked in healthcare, I was either in acute care hospitals or subacute nursing homes. That was a big you know change for me going from that patient to right. resident to you know. Yeah community and all those things. Speaks to the intentionality. Yeah, people today words. can't relate to some words like Lord. Mm -hmm. You know, Jesus is the Lord of my life. Well, what does that mean? Yeah. Bingo. Yeah. Exactly. Yeah. What in the world does that mean? Yeah. <laughs> yeah. yeah. And unpack you know, that. There are no and lords and ladies that. really not here in the U.S. There's some over in England, but they're kind of more yeah. like stars. Yeah. yeah. They're, they're not. Sin. I never killed anybody. Yeah. yeah. Sin. Oh, that, that's offensive. That's harmful. You're making me feel unsafe. Don't say that word. <laughs> right? I think maybe on the flip side of Christianese is is when you just want to like just throw out the basics and trying to witness to someone. Yeah. And it, it, forgive the way I'm going to say this, but you say something like Jesus loves you, mm -hmm. and it's just this yeah. blank. Nonsense, and like you, you hear yourself say it, and it's just like so well, it's not, not giving if, the whole gospel. Yeah, you know, if I yeah. if I wasn't a Christian, I'd be like, and I bet that's what that person thought too. You right. know, because if you're gonna be saved, saved from what? Right. Exactly. It's just it's just this blah stuff that you know the, that that you know bad idea of a Christian preacher is yelling at you on television. Yeah. yeah. And it's like people just well okay forget that nonsense you know and it's like. But it's true. But yeah. it doesn't matter that it's true because everybody just says it in this random, vague way. Yeah. And it doesn't mean anything anymore, which is sad. It's horrible. But it, it won't penetrate that thick skin of religious people and the things they say at you. Yeah. You know? Yeah. So, yeah, like you say, when picking your words, it's like we got to do a little bit better than, unfortunately, the straight truth because in some sense, Certain phrases they don't work anymore. People yeah. have their shield up against them. Yeah. Well, personally, I like using the Word of God for things like like that. You know why? Why? Because Bible says, "For all have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God." And then we go into, you know, what does that mean? Yeah. Know? And then you explain it. And, Definitely. And then you know, move on. But the great, you know, the free gift of God is, you know, salvation. Right. That kind of says that we need to be reading the Bible, uh, meditating on the yes. Bible. Memorizing, memorizing the Bible, yeah. praying the Bible. Praying the Bible. Mm -hmm. It's Which, sticky too because the the culture secularism has co-opted a lot of Christian symbolism. Mm -hmm. The yeah. rainbow is a very good example, right? The rainbow, which is a symbol yeah. of God's faithfulness and promise, mm -hmm. has been hijacked into a political tool, and right. now it means in our culture it means something sure. very different yeah. than its intended purpose. And that some cults have redefined words as well. Oh yeah. Well, that's huge, just defining words. Yeah. And especially the way that, that culture has co-opted some of those words, like yep. diversity. It's like, yeah. okay, well, time out. How are we defining that? Yeah. What is that? Tolerance. Yep. Which exactly. brings up a great point, because to both of their, oh, actually, all three of you guys' points, language is very fluid. It changes a mm -hmm. lot with mm -hmm. culture and time. I know we read some of these things from his pen, and we're just like, what does that even mean? Exactly. Gay suit? What does that even mean? Fluidity? Really a word? Yeah, it is. And yet, the 2,000-year-old piece of scripture that we're all going to to use this as a reference continually and consistently, without being changed, still penetrates the hearts and minds to the same salvation Amen. for thousands of years. And that speaks volumes to the powerful difference between that text 
Yeah. And the rest of the time. Yep. Yeah. So I just wanted to close and, and kind of have us think about that because when you, when you think about a man, this man measured every single word that went on his paper, right? And as a poet, and that's what I would imagine poets do and writers are supposed to do, right? So in my doctoral writing, right, they pour over every single word. You know, is there a better word for that? Is there a better word for this, right? Same deal with George Herbert. He labored over every single word. Why? Because it was about God. Because it was about the glory of God. And so I just wanted us to think a little bit more about that when we do think about the gospel message. We know it so well. It's kind of Christianese sometimes and some of these churchy words or whatever, especially when we're talking to other people. There are some things we can be doing to maybe think about. Think about meditate on God's word. Pray God's word. Memorize God's word. Being in God's word. This is supreme. This is literally his, his words, right? But also then taking that and, and what's stopping you from sitting down and writing something out and talking about that? Like, how would you share this gospel with somebody who didn't know anything about it or somebody who you knew was hostile to it or, or taking some terms that we use in Christianity and writing them out and being like, what does this even mean? Thinking about it in different ways, using the most uh, beneficial, helpful words that we can to tell the greatest story ever told. So just something that causes us to think a little bit more practically. But uh, I did want to let you guys in on a little bit of uh, inside baseball. So um, we are going to be doing our little Giants of the Faith series all the way up through uh, most likely the 22nd of June. We've got a bunch of guys left. We've got uh, George Whitfield next week. A little guy named C.S. Lewis after that. Spurgeon, Mueller, Hudson Taylor, and I hopefully I want to get to Jonathan Edwards and a guy named R.C. Sproul um, to finish up with. So he's back in cleanup, huh? I hope he's got to be there. And then after that, I, I, my plan is this is the inside baseball part to transition into our apologetic series that I I'm doing as part of my doctorate work. Um, tentatively, I'm calling it Problems with Christianity, or I Have Problems with Christianity, and then going through systematically, week by week, those problems. The problem of truth, the problem of scripture, the problem of evil, the problem of Jesus, the problem of science, the problem of other Christians behaving badly, um, problem of exclusivity, problem of sexuality, God all really those exist? things. The pro yeah, all that sort of stuff. So. That's looking like it's going to be about a 10-week series from pretty much all of July and August. So, and I will be looking, just so you guys can be thinking about this, I will be looking for a little bit more of a commitment on that because um, I'm going to need to do like a pre-test and a post-test kind of thing to gauge where we're going and, and have some kind of regular kind of... We're going to take tests? We're going to take written tests? Uh, you're going to, yeah. Having <laughs> multiple choice. Yeah. It will be multiple choice. Paper. It will this is be why multiple choice. Bringing cookies anyway. Multiple guests. <laughs> Part of the doctorate paper, right? Yeah. 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 So you'll be you'll be exactly, measured. You'll be uh, participant one. Yes. <laughs> would this be um, an opportunity to invite and bring people into the group that are not Christians to participate in this, or would you prefer to keep it to the group at this point? I'm. Maybe. I mean, we can talk about that a little bit. I, I'm certainly just, not just against that. that. Think about it. I, mean, yeah, I, know how you're... Think about it. I think the only danger is if it becomes disruptive. 
Like if somebody just has a vendetta, like that's going to derail us. I'm not afraid of questions, but as long as they're honest questions, and it's not someone with an agenda, right, that wants to pick on Christians. We could do that at Starbucks. That's fine, but <laughs> not, 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 not when we're trying to do this. You know what I mean? So I think the answer is probably. So, all right. So just some uh, just some thoughts of where we're going. Okay. All right. Let me pray for us. God, thank you for gathering us here today, uh, tonight. Thank you for uh, men like George Herbert and just the way that you have used their passions, their gifts, their abilities, Lord, uh, to still encourage us in this day. And the wonders of who you are and we pray that that would encourage us we are so thankful for your sovereignty and your grace and the way that you save us and sustain us pray that we would continue to walk more faithfully after you we pray it in jesus name amen amen, amen.